Hello and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping today on Thursday, May 20th at 10 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today we are joined by a video conference by Alice Miranda Olstein of Politico. Good morning. Sarah Carlin-Smith of The Pink Sheet. Hi, Julie. Good to be here. And Mary Ellen McIntyre of CQ Roll Call. Hi, everybody. So let's get to it. We're going to start this week with the news of abortion, a word that apparently President Biden and his top officials are loath to say, even though they have taken steps to undo a lot of President Trump's anti-abortion policies. And most recently, the FDA has announced that it will examine the current restrictions on the abortion pill, Mifepristone, that could make it easier to get. But First of all, it looks like they're going to have to start saying the word because the Supreme Court has agreed to decide a case that was set up to challenge Roe v. Wade. The question is the constitutionality of a Mississippi law that would ban abortions after 15 weeks gestation. That's well before even the most generous estimates of fetal viability and thus violates the court's current standard that states can't ban abortion that early. That standard was set by Roe v. Wade and reiterated in Planned Parenthood of Southeastern Pennsylvania versus Kate. Alice, you're covering this. This is not a case where the court is likely to find some technical way out, right? Like that somebody doesn't have standing to sue. Well, they made that clear because the last abortion case they recently decided to take, they explicitly said, we're only going to talk about the narrow technical procedural issues. And on this one, they said they're really going to go to the heart of the matter. They said the question they're going to consider is basically Roe versus Wade in a nutshell. It's basically are all pre-viability bans on abortion unconstitutional. And so there's really no way they can uphold Mississippi's law without changing Roe versus Wade as we know it. They might find a way to say we're not getting rid of it entirely. We're going to set some sort of new standard here. But they could get rid of it entirely. They could establish that 15 weeks is the new marker. So many states already have gestation bans that are similar. Other states have ones in the works. Other states have ones that were blocked in lower courts. And so, yeah, we should point out that they're all blocked. I keep getting emails that abortion is still legal. Exactly, exactly. So, none are being enforced at the moment, of course. This really goes to the heart of the matter. It's the first major abortion case that they're going to take up since Amy Coney Barrett was confirmed. So, it could be very different than last year's Louisiana case because of that and because of the legal questions involved. So what's the timing here? When do we expect to to hear about this? So they're probably going to hear it sometime in the fall, which means a decision will probably not come down until next summer. And that's just a few months ahead of the midterm elections. So you could hear a lot about this from from both parties and both sides trying to use this to gin up uh, voter uh, enthusiasm and action. These cases take a long time. This law was passed back in 2018. It already is having a big effect, and I anticipate it will continue to have a big effect on what kinds of things states are debating and passing in the meantime. 
So, Mel, abortion's been pretty quiet on the Hill for the last several years because neither side really wants to, to deal. Well, Repub- I take it back. Republicans would like to deal with it. Republicans have brought up bills. Democrats don't really want to deal with this issue because there are still uh, a significant number of, of anti-abortion Democrats or Democrats who aren't particularly, you know, they may, they may support family planning, but not uh, abortion, certainly not federally funded abortion. There's a big push by abortion rights forces to eliminate the Hyde Amendment which would create federal funding for abortion and Medicaid. Um, we're now going to have this in basically front and center for the next 16, 17 months. Is that going to sort of change the dynamic on the Hill, do you think? Is it already? So far, I don't think it really has. I still think that, you know, the biggest thing that we're going to be seeing in the next couple of months as we sort of go into the appropriations process, probably need to, you know, get some sort of government funding. Well, they definitely will need to get a government funding bill passed by the end of September. Rosa DeLauro, who is the Democratic chairwoman of the House Appropriations Committee, has said she does not want to pass another appropriations bill with the Hyde Amendment. This is going to probably be a huge debate in the appropriations process because they do not have the 60 votes in the Senate to pass an appropriations bill without a Hyde Amendment. So if Democrats choose to make this an issue, it definitely is something that could you know, cause a really big challenge for lawmakers up on the Hill. It'll be interesting to see how pro-choice Democrats try to force this issue. Um, in the last few years, I feel like we've seen a lot of the same votes every year with similar tallies. You know, every once in a while you have someone changing their position, but you have a lot of the same votes that the leaders have brought up for votes, largely as statement votes around, you know, large events. There's usually some abortion votes in the Senate and the House around March for Life, for example. It'll be interesting to see how other than sort of this Hyde Amendment debate that everyone will be watching this summer, are there other ways that lawmakers are trying to force votes on this issue in the coming months? And when you say force votes, I imagine these are sort of uh, abortion rights advocates and those on the other side trying to force votes. I mean, Definitely, there's, you know, yes. the, the effort here, I feel like is going to gonna try to put everybody on the hot seat. Yeah, it's also going to probably mess with the, the politics of next year's midterms. That's why I was saying, even though we'll probably see a decision 13 months from now, that it's going to, it should weigh, I imagine it will weigh heavily on next year's midterms, right? Definitely. I remember in the past, you know, on reconciliation bills, you know, that those are a great time to sort of force votes. A few years ago, before the 2016 elections, you know, there was votes about defunding Planned Parenthood, for example, that that was a big thing. Those are good examples that, you know, the other side can sort of force your vulnerable opponents into making these difficult votes to then sort of hammer home on ads and whatnot ahead of the election. Meanwhile, the restrictions keep on coming. This week, Texas Governor Greg Abbott signed a bill that would ban abortions as soon as a fetal heartbeat can be detected. That's around six weeks. Um, This bill is one of several that could ban the procedure even before a woman is aware that she's pregnant. And this one has kind of a special twist to it to try to make it harder to block in court. Right, Alice? Yes. So what the state is doing is they are trying to disrupt the usual playbook here. Usually states pass these kind of restrictions. They know they will get sued immediately by abortion providers or patients or the people representing them, the advocacy groups representing them, saying, look, this clearly violates Roe versus Wade. This needs to be blocked. And it always is. What they're trying to do here is make it impossible for Planned Parenthood or another group to sue the state because they're saying, oh, the state's not actually the one enforcing the law. They're really opening it up to anybody can enforce the law. Anybody, you know, the partner of the person seeking an abortion uh, can sue for, you know, saying they're they're breaking the law. Um, you know, someone at the clinic can file. And so 
this is really getting us into a very weird and new uh, legal landscape on this. This will be one to watch. Texas, as usual, sort of leading the pack on this sort of thing. All right, well, let us turn to COVID. Last week, just after we taped, the CDC announced that fully vaccinated people could stop wearing masks, not just outside, but inside as well. This caught just about everyone off guard and threw state and local officials and business owners into kind of an uproar. Even the public health community was taken aback at the abruptness of the announcement. Lawrence Gostin of Georgetown University wrote that the CDC, quote, has learned from overcaution to abandoning all caution. Lena Wen of George Washington University called it, quote, a major blunder that threatens to set back much of the progress made. Uh, it has clearly created kind of a chaotic situation, yes? Yeah, I was really interested to see the uh, Nurses Union, National Nurses United, really come out swinging against this and saying, you know, this puts our members at risk. This will, you know, we, we've made so much progress uh, in, in bringing case counts down and this threatens to de rail it. I think there's a lot of fear that this is sort of declaring victory too early. I was interested. So CDC Director Rochelle Walensky has been making the rounds on Capitol Hill lately, testifying at lots of different hearings. And this always comes up. She's she's always gets asked about this in every committee. And she really says, look, this was based on science. We had the great data on the vaccine's efficacy from the trials, but now they've been put to the test out in the real world and they're performing amazingly both on preventing severe illness and hospitalization, but also on preventing transmission, which is something that was more of a big question mark earlier. And so she says, look, we have all this new good data, and that's why we felt confident doing this. But there is a lot of anxiety and confusion still. It's interesting to sort of see made this announcement last Thursday and public health officials, I'm not going to say that they're backtracking, but they're definitely trying to massage this message and make it clearer. Like, Walensky has come to the Hill, as Alice said, and she's been wearing a mask, even though we know she is vaccinated. Um, Anthony Fauci, in an interview with Axios this week, kind of said people are misinterpreting this as you don't have to wear a mask anymore. And that's not what the guidance is. So I think there's a little bit of a fear, even possibly from the officials that did make this decision of, oh, crap, this is kind of going a little bit further than we had intended it to. There's been all these states and local governments that have gone further than the CDC. Texas is one that stands out to me that has basically going to be removing all mask mandates, regardless of whether you're vaccinated or not, including in schools and settings where we know lots of people won't be vaccinated because, you know, children under 12 are not eligible at all yet. So I think That's where a lot of the concern um, has come from is, yes, we're doing good on getting more and more people vaccinated, but it's still, you know, less than 50 percent of our population is fully vaccinated. And while CDC is saying if you're not vaccinated, you should wear a mask, people feel that in a lot of cases, people who are not vaccinated won't wear masks and that will put people at risk, including people that genuinely want to get vaccinated but haven't had the chance to fully get there yet because if you were eligible when sort of the sort of mass eligibility for every adult um, opened up in the U.S., you might just be getting your second shot or just entering that sort of end of the two-week period where you reach your full immunity. So I think some people feel like, you know, they didn't really give everybody a fair chance to protect themselves before setting everyone else loose who might not behave properly. Yeah, and I think in Florida, they're 
banning, I mean, Matt, local, the, the state is banning local mask mandates. So, you know, I, well, the, the Trump administration kind of kicked controversial decisions about prevention to the states. This policy kicks controversial decisions down to individual businesses in some cases. For example, can businesses ask customers if they've been vaccinated? I've seen a lot of loose talk about HIPAA violations on social media this week. That's not how HIPAA works, right? No. But this is like a definite challenge. You know, I think we've seen several major businesses sort of say you are no longer required to wear a mask in our stores and that's fine. But there are also a lot of businesses that I think are just trying to figure out what exactly this means, figuring out what exactly their state or city guidance is. Like anecdotally, I asked the owner of my gym, like, do you have a sense of when we might be able to work out without masks on? Like, not super fun. And they were just like, we don't know what to do because we don't know how to know if people are telling the truth if they're vaccinated. And if people aren't but are still in that process, we don't want to put them at risk. So I definitely think this is a business by business kind of trying to figure out how exactly can we do this kind of thing. Yes, I would say I'm on the board of my dog training club. And we've obviously had, you know, capacity limits and mask requirements for, you know, the better part of a year now, or at least since we reopened. And we have no idea what to do. We have veterinarians and medical professionals on the board, and we're all sort of like, do we relax it now? And just just for the record, none of us are covered by HIPAA. You know, we are not health providers, um, although I guess we, the, the people on our board who are health providers are not health providers for the people that we could ask if they're being vaccinated. So that's, it is perfectly fine for your employer to ask you if you are vaccinated. The, the mandate thing is a whole different issue. But I imagine this is we're going to we're going to be at this sort of everybody scrambling around for at least the next couple of months. Also this week, the the Biden administration announced it would be donating 20 million vaccine doses to other not yet named countries. And that Jeff Zients, who has helmed the domestic vaccine distribution effort, will now coordinate the international effort too. Now, 20 million doses sounds like a lot, but it's really just a drop in the bucket considering how much more the world remains to be vaccinated. Are we are we starting to be, I guess we are already being seen as selfish by other particularly undeveloped countries, right? There's a lot of tension right now about this, and especially as the U.S. moves to vaccinate 12 to 15-year-olds. Um, you know, there's a lot of people saying, look, we really have to think about the global community, and this impacts our own safety as well. And in this broader context, does it make sense to vaccinate a 12-year-old who is not high risk where adults are dying around the world and the more the virus spreads in other countries, the more likely new, more dangerous, more contagious variants could emerge, which could make their way back to the U.S. And so, as we've said before, this isn't just a, you know, humanitarian do-gooder issue. This is a national security, national global health question at play and sort of a bioethics question at play, too. Just because the risk is low for 12 to 15 year olds doesn't mean the risk is zero. And so, you know, it's, it's not an easy cut and dried question. And it's kind of hard to say everybody can take their masks off if 12 to 15 year olds can't get vaccinated. I, I have found myself like shying away from children of late. It's like, well, I know you're not vaccinated. I know it's, it's not great. This is a big issue. Why? How is it that we are vaccinating, you know, younger teens when, you know, there are many, many countries that are, if not on fire with COVID now, have not nearly enough vaccine to even make a, a good run at starting to, to get themselves safer? 
in India, which is the country probably getting the most attention now for being in a really bad COVID outbreak, is an incredibly large country. And, you know, the numbers the U.S. has pledged to donate, I think I saw a statistic maybe would help like 1% of their population, something, you know, ridiculously small. And they're in a situation now where, you know, they don't even have enough vaccine to vaccinate medical professionals. I saw one story about the amount of medical professionals dying there in a day. So that's where I think people start to really get into frustrations. And then there's like broader ramifications. I heard a story yesterday on NPR that some of India's manufacturing capability is basically telling other countries that they were going to provide vaccine that they can't provide any because of their current situation and needing it for the country. So this is just kind of a cascading problem in terms of getting the supply where we need to across the globe. The other thing that I've seen is that the Indian variant has actually now moved to Britain. And while there aren't very many cases yet, there are they are you know, multiplying at a geometric rate, as we have seen in other, with other variants. And, you know, clearly this is going to get to the U.S. And we have no idea whether the current vaccines are actually going to protect against this Indian variant, which appears to be even more contagious than the British variant. Right. And so far, most of the um, lab studies of the vaccines in the use for most of the variants of concern, the vaccines seem to work maybe not as well, but enough that people feel comfortable about them. I haven't seen data on this particular variant. And the concern kind of becomes if we start to need to update the MNRVA vaccines, which can be updated fairly easily, you could get into the cycle where the U.S. is going to say, well, we want to vaccinate our population again, essentially like giving boosters and so forth before you end up vaccinating some places of the world with the first shot. So I think that's where if you don't start giving everybody some vaccine soon, we may end up in a situation where, again, we're going to need boosters either because the efficacy just, you know, is not durable after a certain period of time or because we do get a variant where we need to adjust the shot. So I think there's going to be a lot of talk probably in the next few months, if not sooner, about, you know, what can we do to get more vaccine manufactured faster for more parts of the world? Obviously, a few weeks ago, we had a lot of discussion and controversy about whether, you know, that would be helpful to break patents um, of some of these companies. But this is not going away anytime soon. Yeah. And, and Mel, I guess the, the, the big fight on Capitol Hill this week was over masks on the House floor, right? Yeah, um, I was not up there um, this week, but that definitely seemed to be the thing. You know, um, Speaker Pelosi has sort of said, I will lift the mask floor restriction um, when everyone or requirement when everyone is vaccinated and sort of setting this very high threshold of 100 percent. And CNN has done a great job of sort of reporting out on the House side, you know, 100% of House Democrats say they've been vaccinated. I think you've got give or take numbers, about half of House Republicans will say they're vaccinated. The assumption is that more House Republicans actually are vaccinated, but they don't want to say either way whether or not they have been. And then you have Kevin McCarthy bringing up resolutions to say, let's get rid of this. And basically, Pelosi being like, just get your people vaccinated and we can. This is now spilling over to committees where Republicans really want to get back to, you know, having in-person markups and hearings as opposed to doing the virtual thing. Um, and whether or not you require masks in a hearing room, which initially they weren't going to be. So, yeah, it's definitely, you know, a lot of challenging things. You've got House Republicans showing up to votes, not wearing masks and saying, OK, I'll pay the fine. I want my freedom here. So, yeah. As usual, it's a bit of a mess in the house. The, the road back to normal is full of bumps. Yes. And 
and and this is definitely not over yet. All right, well, I do want to talk about Medicaid expansion, or not Medicaid expansion, as the case seems to be. Last August, voters in Missouri approved a referendum to make the Show Me State the 37th to expand Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act, but last week, the Republican governor said, sorry, voters, the legislature failed to provide the very small state share, so no expansion, even though the state has a billion-dollar surplus at the moment. Meanwhile, in Mississippi, the Fairness Project, which has spearheaded state ballot questions in six other states, announced it was folding up, at least for now. That's after the state Supreme Court last week invalidated Mississippi's entire ballot referendum process in striking down a medical marijuana initiative. The Fairness Project is still hoping to get a Medicaid expansion question on the South Dakota ballot in 2022. But have we hit the wall here on Medicaid expansion? Are these last dozen or so states going to hold out forever? Well, I think it's interesting that on Capitol Hill, there was a move to make it more enticing financially for states to expand. But at the same time, there was discussion about whether there should be some sort of federalization, which would get around these state governors and legislatures who are opposed to this and expand Medicaid for those populations on the federal level somehow. And that seems to have kind of faded into the background for now, at least. But um, it's interesting because the fact that that was even debated sort of shows that in some sense they're, they're giving up on these folks changing their minds, even with the enhanced financial incentives. But I think it's not a completely done deal. I mean, I think about Maine, for instance, where you had the governor block Medicaid expansion for so long and he was uh, voted out of office and replaced by a Democratic governor and Medicaid did go ahead and expand. And so it's possible that that could play out in other states. But I think that there are just some states where it is so unlikely for that kind of uh, party control flip to happen that some sort of federal move might have to be uh, needed to get to that population. Yeah, I mean, that this is, it's obviously sort of the lowest hanging fruit of people who are uh, uninsured are these people who um, who don't earn enough to, to get subsidies on the Affordable Care Act exchanges, but earn too much or are not in the right categories to get Medicaid in their states currently. And there's several, depending on who's, whose numbers you use, there are at least a couple or several million of these people who would be covered if the remaining states, and there's some big ones, Florida, Georgia, Texas, um, actually expanded Medicaid. Do we have any, any expectations for any of them? At this point, I don't really think so. I mean, you know, Congress, Democrats in Congress really tried to make this, I think, as appealing as they can, even more appealing than it has been. And we saw a little bit of moves right after that. You know, Wyoming's legislature considered it. So it's not like there hasn't been any move, but that did not appear enough to sort of sway a lot of these Republican legislators to change their mind on this. I agree with Alice. Like, I don't think it's like we are at the end of the road. This isn't going to happen. But clearly we are at, you know, the most uphill climb as we've seen so far um, with these holdout states, Um, especially after sort of in the last couple of years, you've had a wave of states 
expand Medicaid that had for many years not. So I think we're really at the hardest point of this process for these states to do this and make these people eligible for care. All right. Well, finally this week, a couple of updates on the drug price front. The Supreme Court this week upheld the patent extension of the best-selling and much-advertised rheumatoid arthritis biologic drug Enbrel. That means it will be at least 2029 before there's an available generic. And the House Oversight Committee held its third hearing on sky-high drug prices, this one focusing on AbbVie, the makers of Humira, an immunosuppressive drug, and cancer drug Imbruvica. According to a report by the Oversight Committee staff, AbbVie has, quote, exploited the U.S patent system and engaged in anti-competitive practices to extend its monopoly pricing. And many of the members of the committee were not particularly gentle with the company's CEO. But while it made for good theater, is it going to lead to anything legislatively? (laughs) I I wouldn't hold your breath. One thing um, my colleague who was watching the hearing noted in her coverage is that Republicans made a couple comments at the hearing, basically saying President Biden and his administration's recent push to um, support breaking patents on the COVID vaccines for worldwide use might hurt any kind of chances of Democrats and Republicans coming to agreement on this other patent issue, more of sort of a domestic patent drug pricing issue. Um, So that was pretty interesting because this issue is something that that I think sometimes Republicans, even though they tend to not um, want to wade too much into drug prices um, and let the private kind of market settle it, They can sometimes get behind this if they feel like companies are messing with the market in a way that's making it anti-competitive, which a lot of people would argue AbbVie has because they've just sort of come up with ways to block every sort of system that would enable competition to their drug that the U.S. has. So it's certainly possible that Congress could get to a solution. It's certainly more likely that Republicans and Democrats could find agreement on the topic of patents that and drug pricing than sort of drug price negotiation, but it's certainly not easy. <laughs> yes, well, there will there will be many much more about drug prices as we go. All right, that is the news for this week. Now it is time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week that we think others should read too. Don't worry if you miss it, we will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash what the health. Sarah, why don't you go first this week? Sure. So the story I looked at is a Kaiser Health News piece called Why Your Dentists May Seem Pushy by Daryl Austin. And it it looked at um, a number of different practices that dentists have been using over the years to sort of upsell patients or maybe um, essentially provide them with services they don't need just to increase their profits. And this look at fraud, and it sort of seems like it proliferates sometimes in Medicaid is a popular place, but it kind of may hurt patients on private insurance as well. And it's it's just a bit um, sort of disconcerting, I think, because when you go to a health provider like a dentist, you're sort of relying on their expertise and you have to trust them that when they say you have a cavity, you actually have a cavity or when they say, you know, you need a crown, you actually need a crown. And this story sort of shows that, you know, maybe you have a small cavity and instead of just giving you the normal filling, a dentist may suggest a crown just because they can make more money off of it. And that's a big issue for not just trust, but obviously, you know, like I said, Medicaid and other parts of the U.S. health system losing billions of dollars, this story shows on some of this fraud. Yeah, that was quite an eye-opening story. Mel? Yeah, my story for this week is um, Helen Branswell from STAT wrote 
about how the pandemic ends and talk to different scientists about whether or not they kind of think we are in the home stretch of the pandemic. And I think when I saw Helen Brenswell writing about the end of the pandemic, I just sort of thought, oh my God, yay, is this, does this mean this is something we're allowed to start thinking about? Like, if she's thinking about it, then like, I surely can think about it. But I thought it was really interesting talking about sort of like how this coronavirus will lead into something like we're not probably get full herd immunity, we're not going to like completely expel this from our lives, but it will probably turn into you know, something eventually, I think scientists really seem to differ on whether this is something that could happen in the next like year, six months to a year or longer, but turn into more of like a cold type of situation, you know, something that is more like the flu in that it's a lot less deadly and you're less less likely to get severe disease. Now that it won't happen, but just at such a lower level than we've been dealing with for the last year. So for me, it was just a really interesting look at how different scientists are thinking about it. You know, you have some scientists saying, I'm really surprised we're not there yet. And others saying, you know, with these emerging variants, I do not think it is time to think about this yet. So a really interesting story and just nice to think about. Maybe we are allowed to start thinking about the end of this. I think it really <laughs> sums up where we are. I will say there were there were, there yeah. were multiple requests for this story as an extra credit. Alice. So I picked a story from the 19th. It's called Women in Healthcare Are at a Breaking Point and They're Leaving. And it's really digging into some of the employment data that have come out recently and showing that there are just these huge gender disparities. Um, employment uh, for men has recovered a lot and it really hasn't for women. And it digs into what that looks like in the healthcare sector in particular, where Women are overwhelmingly in the lower paid, uh, worse hours, worse benefits, more instability, fewer protections on the job kind of jobs and have experienced a lot of the trauma and burnout from the pandemic and are being pushed out of the industry. And this could create some real shortages and problems. And so it's important to call attention to this. Well, if my story sounds familiar, that's because it is. It's from CNN by Casey Tolan, and it's called, quote, There's No Way I Can Pay For This. One of America's largest for-profit hospital chains has been suing thousands of patients during the pandemic. This time, the, the chain in question is Community Health Systems, which runs 84 hospitals in 16 states, mostly in the South. Since March 2020, meaning during the pandemic, the chain has filed at least 19,000 lawsuits against patients for unpaid bills, even as it received more than $700 million in pandemic payments from the federal government. Those suits included ones for charges at hospitals the chain had already sold or hospitals that had closed. We will see if any of these people, many of whom should have been eligible for financial aid, will get any relief as a result of this story. That is at least what's happened with other stories along this line in the past. Okay, that is our show for this week. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people People find us too. Special thanks, as always, to our ace producer, Francis Ying, who makes us all sound good, even when we're in different places. Also, as always, you can email us your questions or comments. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. Alice? At Alice Holstein. Mel? At Mel McIntyre. Sarah? At Sarah Carlin. We will be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy. Be healthy.